have a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine Podcast. This edition, this series, is a special Chalk Valley History Festival series. And because of that, we will be running no adverts for the duration of this series. So sit back and listen to myself and the other team members speak to some amazing historians from the Chalk Valley History Festival. Hello and welcome to the Historians Magazine podcast at Chalk Valley History Festival. I'm Jackson Van Uden, one of your hosts, and today we are with Matt Lewis. How are you doing, Matt? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's That's all right. It's great to have you back on the podcast as well. I know last time you came on, you were with Chris, and it was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Chris about all things Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And, yeah, I think, I think you two have definitely fostered a love for Eleanor within my own historical passion as yeah, well. Yeah, I think there's definitely a shared love there. Fortunately, there's enough good stories about Eleanor to go around. So. Yeah, or three lifetimes worth, yeah, really. Yeah, absolutely. So why, why are Harry, oh, Harry, Henry and Eleanor important then? I think they really set... So I position them as kind of this original power couple. You know, we, we talk about power couples today. Um, this was a couple who literally controlled swathes of Europe from Hadrian's Wall in the north down to the Pyrenees Mountains in the south controlled more of France than the King of France did um, and and managed this entire set of lands there's quite often a tendency to call this the Angevin Empire but I tried to argue that it wasn't really an empire because empires you tend to try and impose a single form of law and government across the vast territories what Henry did was to try and manage all of those lands in a way that that retained their own identity and their own independence. So he's dealing with dozens of different cultures and law codes and ways of doing things and ways of raising money, and he's managing to do all of that. But I think he he ends up setting England as, as the kind of prime title that he holds on a collision course with France because this idea of controlling more of France than the French king does makes him a huge threat to, to Louis VII, who is the King of France at the time, uh, and who, on a personal note, is Eleanor of Aquitaine's first husband. So, you know, we, yeah, we've got you don't a, really a want <laughs> awkward situation in the middle of all of this as well. So there's there's a, a political battle going on. There's a really personal element to it as well, and I think you can almost trace this idea of England versus France that endures for centuries afterwards back to this rivalry that's set up between Henry and Louis. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Dynamic. And when you talk about the differences between the different areas of this empire, per se, it's reminded me a lot about the United States, how they're having to manage different states and different customs and so on around there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Henry doesn't seem particularly interested in trying to change any of that. And I think he, he understands, he has a really good grip on who Normandy and who the Normans are. Um, and that's exhibited in a, in a revolt. Revolt? <laughs> In a revolt uh, in 1173, the, the famous time when his sons kind of move against him, and they, they organise this kind of pincer assault on Normandy where uh, the Earl of Chester is going to come in from Brittany in the west, the Earl of uh, the Count of Flanders is going to come in from the east, Louis is going to bring an army up from Paris from the south, and they're going to crush Normandy. And Henry's response to this threat is to, to sail back over to England. <laughs> and he kind of sits there and puts his feet up, which sounds really odd, but what Henry understands about the Normans is, is a story that goes back to kind of the, the anarchy and this when Normandy first becomes part of the, the 
realm of England or, or join with the English crown, that Normans, their descendants of Vikings, if there's no fight to be had, they'll fight each other. They're quite <laughs> happy tearing each other apart. Um, and Audric Vitalis you know, has some great quotes on the, the, the way that they behave like the beast of the apocalypse to each other. And their mother's eyes are always wet with tears because they're constantly fighting each other. The one thing that unites Normans is a threat from the outside. Uh, and Audric Vitalis talks about the fact that they would rather burn all of their property and, and everything that they own than see it pass into the hands of a foreigner. So when Henry evacuates Normandy, he knows exactly what he's doing. He understands Normandy. The best way to, to defend Normandy is to let Normandy defend itself. So these three prongs of this attack arrive and they all fail abysmally. And about a month into the, the siege that Louis is pursuing, the, the assault on the west is going nowhere. The assault on the east has faltered. Philip has withdrawn back to, to Flanders. Only at this point does Henry sail across yeah. from England with 20,000 mercenaries in a boat they're looking for a fight and, it, and it's an easy win because Normandy has done the job for him. So I think Henry is remarkable in just understanding all of the differences, the nuances in the, the places and the peoples that he controls. He doesn't try to mash them together into a single empire that looks like what he wants it to look like. Instead, he reflects them and their customs and their cultures. It's quite, it's quite a mature political way of thinking and dealing with things. And I, I love how beautiful language is of these medieval chronicles it's it's absolutely amazing now I, w I want to ask you you know you're a massive figure in the history of henry and eleanor you know talking about it not in their own personal history uh, what is the one most important takeaway that you think people should have on these two individuals i mean just how incredible eleanor is yeah <laughs> everyone wants to talk about henry because he's king but eleanor you know i position her as living these three different medieval lives she's queen of england uh, She's Queen of France yeah. before she even meets Henry. She goes to the Holy Land on crusade. She spends an Easter in Jerusalem, you know, following the, the course of the cross that, that, that Jesus was crucified on. You know, once in a lifetime experiences for, for a medieval person. She ends up then, her marriage is annulled. She meets Henry. She has a whole life then as, as Queen of England, a mother of this brood of children who cause endless catastrophes and problems for them. But then Henry dies in 1189 and Eleanor goes on to lead this whole other third life as mother to Richard I. You know, she in her 60s, she travels to Iberia, to Spain, to go and collect Berengaria of Navarre and takes her all the way through Italy to, to Sicily to rendezvous with Richard so that he gets married when he's on his way to crusade. Because she's thinking, you, know, you haven't got marriage, you haven't got an heir. What happens if something happens to you? When Richard is captured on the way back from Crusade, it's Eleanor in her 70s who kind of mobilises all of these Angevin lands to raise the money, the massive ransom, to, to get him released. So I wanted to ask you two fun questions because, you know, yeah, have, as you've been on the podcast before, we like to ask fun questions. If you could go back in time and change one event, what would it be and why? Oh, I think I might stop Edward IV from going on a fishing trip in 1483. Okay. <laughs> Um, if that's how he ends up catching his chill and, and dying at the age of 40. And that's simply because my great obsession is Richard III. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, but I'm all over Richard III. And I think there, there are lots of nuances about 1483, but it, it is mired in controversy and difficulty. And, and really, for most people, what happens in 1483 trashes Richard's reputation. I think if Edward had lived longer, yeah. been succeeded by Edward V... We might well remember Richard as this remarkable nobleman in the north who was kind of an exemplar of what a, a medieval nobleman and landowner uh, and good lord should do and the way that he should behave. So 
um, I have a very different take on, on Richard yeah. III's tradition to most people, I guess, probably. But still, I think, you know, if he hadn't had to deal with all that stuff in 1483, we might think about Richard, Duke of Gloucester very differently. Yeah, and, and certainly when you compare him with George, Duke of Clarence, he would definitely look like a lot lot better Absolutely, I mean, they're, yeah, they're chalk and cheese. So, yeah, I guess if I could go back, head out to wherever it was on the Thames and, and shove right. Edward back off that boat. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good, good answer. And then last one. Oh, someone's sneezing. Last one, if you go back in time and be best friends or bring them forward, best friends of any figure from history, who would it be? Uh, I mean, and then what would you do as well? That's that's an important question there. My my historical man crush is definitely <laughs> Richard, Duke of York, Richard III's dad. Um, I find him such a fascinating character. Um, I would get him to take me on a tour of Ludlow Castle. It's my favourite oh. castle. <laughs> He, he owned it in its heyday. I'd take him back there and I'd get him to give me a, a guided tour, a first-hand tour of, of Ludlow Castle. Um, yeah, I, I find him such a fascinating character, such a misunderstood, understudied figure. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And would you get a drink with him afterwards? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, Ludlow has its own brewing company now, so I could take him down and, and introduce him to the Ludlow Brewing Company and get some local <laughs> beer. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. And then last thing... You know, would you want to share your socials, any projects that you're working with uh, for the rest of the listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I am on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, far more than I should be. Always <laughs> looking for a fight about Richard III uh, and the princes in the tower. Um, I, my podcast is called Gone Medieval, so you know, full of, of medieval goodness. If anyone wants to find us out there, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, and I occasionally make documentaries for, for History Hit TV as well. So if anyone wants a, a subscription to that, you can get a free trial. Uh, and have a look at my documentaries on castles, for example. There's a documentary on there about Henry II and his relationship to the story of King Arthur, which is hopefully oh, interesting awesome. as well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to see oh, you. That's right. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>